0: What up, peeps? Welcome into Unscripted and Unprepared, brought to you by Real Screen Magazine. I'm Jimmy Fox, and this episode is my sit-down with one half of the dynamic duo at World of Wonder, Fenton Bailey. We recorded this live in front of an audience in New Orleans at this past Real Screen. What a great time. I had never met Fenton before. Uh, It was such a joy to be around him and get to know him through the course of this interview. I think you're going to love it. Uh, Guys, The Body of Work by World of Wonder look it up. It is an IMDB that reads like an Encyclopedia Britannica. None of you millennials are going to get that reference. But it is impressive. Just Tori and Dean and all of the million-dollar listings and RuPaul's Drag Race, that, that alone should get you into the Hall of Fame. And they've done so much more. Uh, Featured documentaries, and now they are like convention impresarios running drag con. What can't World of Wonder do? Um, Fenton Bailey, again, what a joy. So happy to get this one into the can and share it with you guys. So here it is, my sit down with Fenton, live from New Orleans. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, everybody. Happy Wednesday. Look at that. They never clap like that in DC. We must be in New Orleans. Um, you look pretty good for a guy that had a big party last night.
1: Well, yeah. Thank you very much. Yes. Um, look good maybe, but don't feel as fresh as a as fresh as fresh I was on Monday.
0: What, what were the festivities last night? Was it was well, big, big Frida's birthday?
1: Yes, that's right. Uh, we did a show with Big Frida for six seasons on Fuse. Big Frida, the queen diva. Right. And uh, it was her birthday. So we got her a cake and had a party. She's a local
0: legend, right? In the hip hop scene?
1: Yeah, I would say she's a pretty uh, local legend and international legend. She's on, uh, Beyonce used her at the beginning of Formation, the Mm -hmm. Formation single. Uh, Her voice is on the Drake single as well. And Bigfoot is an amazing phenomenon. Bigfoot is quite hard to define, but one of the pioneers of twerking
0: well, this seems to be it 's <laughs> working This seems to be the trademark of World of Wonder: finding characters like this. Uh, uh, I have to tell you of all the podcasts we 've done, this one gave me the most anxiety what? because we had never met before, right We just met for the first time a yeah. few minutes earlier, and when I did my research and went through the credits, I mean it is immense. The body of work of World of Wonder is so impressive, so for anybody who listens to this. Apologies in advance, if I don't hit every single one on the greatest hits list, I'm going to do my best. Um, but where I'd love to start is where the love of television and film began for you. Where did you grow up again?
1: Well, you know, we were just chatting, and I hadn't thought about this, but when I was six years old, a long time ago, um, Batman and Robin came on TV. The Adam West? The, the Adam West, the TV show. Oh, yeah. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And it was, the colors were so bright. (laughs) And the whole thing was so completely outrageous. I mean, I didn't understand camp, but something about it, I was drawn to it and became so overexcited, uh, my parents banned me from watching it. Um, Because you
0: were overexcited? Yes,
1: I was just overstimulated. What would the
0: overexcitement lead to that your parents would ban it? Well, you know, we're British and we're very sort of... (laughs)
1: Stiff up a lip. So I would dance around and raise my voice and just
0: misbehave, I suppose. Try, try to know. climb up the side of the building. Right,
1: as opposed to having tea in a Jane Austen-like way. And it, we'd just gotten a color TV. And um, it was, but culturally, I also remember there was this backlash. You know, in Britain, there was this sort of Batman and Robin is bad and mm. trash. And watching color TV will corrupt you. Plus, walking (gasps) up side buildings is also dangerous. It's also
0: dangerous and should not be... The whole thing was considered
1: violent and, I mean...
0: You just gave me a a flashback to my own childhood. Uh, When I was turning eight, all I wanted for my birthday was a Batman shirt. Now, this was the the later Batman movie with Michael Keaton, right? Oh, Oh,
1: you're so young. And all...
0: (laughs) And all, all I wanted was this one shirt and my mom, for whatever reason, thought the logo and the design and the whole thing was like devilish and I didn't get that shirt for my but birthday.
1: There is something really powerful about these superhero characters. And I felt it was a grave mistake to try and make Batman serious, a serious psychological mm-hmm. study. And they've never really gone back to the camp Batman, which I think is a, a terrible tragedy. But there was something, there's something kind of sexy about that whole thing and Spider-Man. Oh my God! After <laughs> after Batman, it was Spider-Man, and I had like a Spider-Man outfit with netting that I made from a fish net. And I suppose that was really the beginning. Was this uh, just a childhood? Uh,
0: was this just a childhood phase, or did the fanboy well, in you kind of uh, No, because
1: now I have to confess. The next thing that when I was 12 years old, me and my best friend we made a Super 8 film, okay. and we remade Sunset Boulevard.
0: Oh, that's awesome!
1: And what role? I was Gloria Swanson. Oh yeah! Uh, Oh yeah! So you know, I guess the writing was on the wall. I mean, it's so funny. I haven't thought about this (laughs) until now, but they—it's all over. It's all explained.
0: So I think I think we have to get into uh, what first brought you to America and where you met Randy. That was at NYU, correct?
1: It was, yes. I had no idea what I was going to do. I, I went to postgrad uh, graduate school, I mean, at, at NYU. Uh, I was at university in England. I had no idea what I was going to do. Okay. Um, they have this careers thing and that you take a test, and they call you in and tell you about yourself. And, uh,
0: like an aptitude test? I guess,
1: like, you know, just what you should do with your life. Yeah. Some sort of careers thing. And they said that, in my case, they thought planned procrastination was the best thing. <laughs> so
0: that's a category.
1: Apparently, yeah. It's like, I mean, it's obviously not a good thing. Yeah. To, to plan and procrastinate. Um, so I thought maybe I should leave England and. Uh, <laughs> The truth is, something
0: else. What country would be right for procrastination? (laughs) I'll go to America. Well,
1: my father thought the foreign office would be quite good for that. (laughs) Um, But I didn't fancy that. So I saw this play, uh, this film, uh, The Naked Civil Servant, when I was about 16 on telly with uh, Quentin Crisp, who was this great British queen who went to America, Mm. um, played by, oh, good God. who Who played him? Thank you, John Hurt. Yes.
0: Um, Thank you. Thank you, audience.
1: Absolutely fantastic. And I suppose I recognized, you know, I, I sort of knew I was gay by this point. And I thought... I thought Sunset
0: Boulevard might have been the first I, moment, but...
1: <laughs> My parents said they were really surprised when... 35 years old, I told him I was gay. 35. Yes. And that, that's after a lot of other key things that they really should have picked up on if they were, <laughs> were paying lot,
0: attention. There were a lot of works on the IMDb at that point right. that I led him in that direction, yeah. But anyway,
1: I saw Naked Civil Servant and Quentin Crisp went off to America. and or, or rather, in the Second World War, the Americans came over to Britain. And he just thought they were so sexy and hot. And this idea formed in my mind that I just had to go to America. So... Um, You
0: you applied to NYU? I applied to
1: NYU, yeah. I got to go there and do something, and um, I was very fortunate. I I won a fellowship that paid for me to go to film school, and so off I went.
0: All right, so give me the the moment, the moment you and Randy first meet. Okay. Um, (laughs) You've probably told this a million times. I'm sorry to have you do it. No, no,
1: no. I I saw Randy uh, in the lobby of NYU, and I thought, oh, he's quite good-looking. Um, and he had this shirt on. Uh, it was a really awful shirt, hideous. sort of hand-painted thing. And it had some sort of ugly face on it. And then, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, underneath it. So I said, well, that's a nice shirt. Which, you know, I just thought it was a way to start talking to him. But it was a, a Marsha Brady shirt from the Brady Bunch. Yeah. I'm sorry,
0: I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I had sorry. no
1: idea. I, yeah, maybe I okay. could explain it to me. I can't. But I said, that's a nice shirt. And okay.
0: So the first thing you said to him was a lie because yes. you hated the shirt. Okay. And then he
1: lied to me. Uh, he said, those are cool pants. <laughs> okay. Cause I, I was wearing a pair of long pants that were turquoise pants with zips all over them. Was he lying like, back to you? But it, yes, of course yeah. he was. Yes. Um, and so they yeah, were lying to each other ever since it's gone really well.
0: Amazing. How long did it take until the fabulous Pop-Tarts started? Oh, God. Oh God. You know I had to ask about this. <laughs> I Audience, did. is anybody out here aware of who the fabulous Pop-Tarts are? Yes. No. Okay. All right. Clue everybody in. What, what was this? <sighs> well, <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: uh,
1: at film school, it was just really hard to get into the film industry um, there really wasn't an independent film industry. I mean, this is, we're talking a long time ago. And this was sort of really before Sundance and that whole independent film thing took off. So we thought that what we should do is become pop stars. And with the money we make from having hit records, we can then make films.
0: And had you had any musical- So simple. Any musical background at this point?
1: Uh, I had been told at school that I was tone deaf and had no musical ability, but... <laughs> Didn't let that stop you. Randy can sing. Randy really okay. can could, could sing and Randy can play. And um, I, I, growing up with Top of the Pops in Britain, you know, you got the impression that not a lot of the pop stars had musical ability, but they had a sense of fabulousness and they had a look and it was just... I just thought that's what pop music was, you know.
0: <laughs> so who would produce the music?
1: Um, we did well. I bought a drum machine. I mean, come on! I, you know how hard is it? I bought a drum machine, and um, Randy could bang out a few chords. And
0: uh, did you go by the same name, or did you have your pop star name?
1: My pop star name was um, he, he was Randy Pop, and I was Fenton Tart, and it was the Pop Tarts. And then we added Fabulous Pop Tarts because we didn't seem to be getting anywhere as the Pop Tarts, so we thought, <laughs> let's up it a bit. Yeah,
0: people, Yeah. Yes. There are multiple videos out there on YouTube. Like, you guys were, I mean... In, There's a few. At your level, like, you guys were prolific in that you were turning out music videos and you were mm-hmm. playing a lot of clubs in the New York scene. Yes. Like, you were doing this for how long?
1: Too long. Too long. Um, but we were trying to, you know, we did try everything. We, we did get a couple of record deals and and what really... Yeah, you
0: were really doing it.
1: Yes. So and we got a music publishing deal. So we, yeah. we knew how to write songs, I guess.
0: Um, and... Uh, yeah. How did, how did the formation of World of Wonder start? Well... How did you guys decide, okay, let's get into production full-time?
1: Yeah, I guess we were about 28, realizing that our pop star days were numbered, in terms of making it. You yeah. know, we'd, we'd been on... Um, we were picked up by Signed to Personal Records, which was... Do um, you Remember, I Wonder If I Take You Home? hmm They were on that label. Okay. Um... Joyce Sims, you are my... Oh, Shannon was on the label. And we were like, oh, we're just... It's going to be minutes now before we have a hit record. But it it just didn't happen. Mm. Um, So as we were sort of getting towards 30, we thought we'd better do something else. And and Randy and I actually, while we were doing the Pop-Tarts, we both had day jobs. Randy worked uh, on Madison Avenue in an advertising agency. And I worked on Wall Street in an investment bank, but not selling and trading bonds, um, making, vi- ed- editing video training tapes.
0: Video training tapes for people that wanted to be traders?
1: Yes, like uh, mortgage-backed zero-coupon bonds, and there would be a very dry lecture about them, and I would have to edit the tape.
0: Oh, you um, must have been miserable.
1: I did. I had to go and get a book to understand it. But then one day, they bought me a tape, and I put in this tape, and it was this incredible guy. He was so charismatic and was talking with such fervor about junk bonds. And I was like, I've got to find out who this person is and what it's all about. And it was Michael Milken. Wow. The junk bond genius. <laughs> and um, I, I was working at Drexel Burnham in this video, in oh, this video department. And then, um, having read a couple of books and figured out what junk bonds were and editing these videos for the High Yield Bond Conference in Beverly Hills. Then this guy, Rudy Giuliani, came along, and this guy, Ivan bosky and this investigation started to close in, and I realized I was sitting right at the center of this amazing story. So um, I went to Channel 4 and said, what about a film? And I'd never made anything for television, but... but uh, I got to edit and research the documentary. And the commissioning editor said, have you got anything else? And Randy and I, in our spare time, would love to watch public access. Because in Manhattan, and I guess other towns, other places around the country, you could... It, this was so weird to me. In America, if you wanted to make a TV show and have a TV show on, on the air, you, you could do that. You could through
0: public access. Yeah. You can't
1: do that in England. Right. Yeah. Uh, Public access, yes, and there were some crazy shows in yes. New York. Um, Robin Bird comes to mind, you know, who would wear a crocheted bikini <laughs> and sing a song, bang your box. Um, and there were just all these really eccentric shows. So Randy and I, we had this idea: let's get clips from these shows, huh. put them into a, sh- cut them up, make them into a show, a compilation show. And do stories about life in New York, pop culture in New York, interspersed with these clips. And that was Manhattan Cable, and that was our first series.
0: And how soon after that did you have to come up with a company name?
1: Well, we, we had World of Wonder because um, World of Wonder was the record label for the Pop Tarts. Oh, it was? Yes. So we, we just used that name.
0: Got it, just okay. Took that name, yeah. Uh, you guys as a, as a pair, as a team, I'm always fascinated to talk to people that, you know, work in pairs and run their business together. At, early on, did you guys, when you started to pitch and, and go out with more ideas, did you guys have a strategy or a structure to how you ran your meetings? Did one person do more, more of the talking? Did one person speak to this facet of making the shows? How did you guys divvy up the duties in the partnership early on and has that changed at all since? Well, you know, I was listening to your podcast and listening to... Oh, stop then.
1: I was. And listening to the stories of these incredible professionals who have such a clear idea of what they were doing all along. (laughs) Randy and I had no idea. And we we had to pitch shows because we'd rented this loft. Well, we were living in a small apartment, a six-floor walk-up, and we got the commission for Manhattan Cable... So we're like, well, we'll need an office. Mm-hmm. So we thought, why don't we get a loft, and we'll live in the back part of the loft, and the front part can be the office. Right. Which was great when we were in production; it was great. And then the production was coming to an end, and we didn't have another one, and the rent was a right. lot. Right. So we had to get a show. That's how, that's how mm-hmm. that worked.
0: But was anyone the pitcher? Was someone more the idea person, no, or did we, you guys just kind of share the same we just sensibility? Just did it together.
1: I think we just yes went out together. Um,
0: Early on, I saw – because the company formed in 91. Yeah. In 93, one of the earliest credits I saw was RuPaul's Christmas Ball. Yes. And I saw this, and I was like, how is this not still an annual thing, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, but what I did see later as I – you know, three hours later when I got through all the credits, mm-hmm. uh, I saw that you have done some Christmas specials since with Drag Race. Yes. So who is the Christmas lover in, the, in this group? Oh, and how is this?
1: Has always been really special, um, you know. It's, I suppose, it's our love of anything that's quite camp. Is that every Christmas there are Christmas hits and, right. you know, John and Yoko. So this is uh, war is up. What is it? War is over. Yeah, war is yeah. over. So this is good. We love a Christmas song, you know. It's just we love it. So in fact, when we were the Pop Tarts, we had a Christmas song. Of course. Called Hot Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> and we released that ourselves. And Channel 4, I have to say, and uh, Maria's here.
0: I mean, the Brits kind of invented the Christmas special, right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. We did, yes. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Yes, we it did. It feels that the way. Brits it did. feels that way. And um, Channel 4 would do around... It's so funny because in British TV, Christmas is seen as treat time. Mm. So you've had sort of boiled potatoes all year. And at Christmas, it's going to we're going to give you treats. You know... That, Broadcasting works like that. It's some sort of sort of patriarchal educational thing, and at Christmas it's treat time. Now we have fun. Yes. Yeah. So they do Christmas specials, and uh, that year Channel Four decided to do a camp Christmas, and because of that, we got to make RuPaul Christmas special because RuPaul had been doing segments in Manhattan Cable. Okay. And he was just a breakout star. I was
0: going to ask, because I wanted to go back in the time machine. This is before viral videos. This is before people are cast in reality shows that can become breakout stars. RuPaul's claim to fame or how RuPaul first got on the map was through the New York Public Access Station. Is that right?
1: Well, it's a little bit. Yes. In... Originally, RuPaul's from San Diego. He moved to Atlanta. He was on a public access show there called the American Music Show. Okay. And he recorded some albums with Funtone Records. Um, Dick Richards, who's just recently passed away, was this amazing figure who collected crazy characters and had them on the American Music Show. And RuPaul was a staple. And from that, Ru then went to New York and... So on and so forth.
0: Right. Four years later, you would do the RuPaul show on VH1. Right. Uh, remarkably, VH1 there. And obviously, you end up on VH1 years later. Right. Uh, but before we get there, we're going to get in the drag race in a little bit. Uh, one thing that really stood out, um, you, you both time and time again have produced documentaries or docu series with individuals, public figures that have – you know, live their lives, you know, out out in the media, out in the public, and you would think would be very slow to ever trust anybody with their story. And time and time again, World of Wonder has earned their trust. And examples, in 2000, you do a documentary, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, with Tammy Faye Baker. In 2002, Monica in Black and White with Monica Lewinsky. In 2008, a Heidi Fleiss documentary. 2008, again, Pam Anderson series. 2011, Becoming Chaz with Chaz Bono, 2013. I am Britney Jean with Britney Spears. Uh, the emphasis there was because my wife is obsessed, oh. and and I've seen Britney twice um, live uh, with my wife. 2013. Uh, Latoya Jackson series. Okay. These again. These are individuals that are very closed off, right? Very private, and you and Randy, time and time again, earn their trust. Is there a strategy you guys have going into these initial meetings, or is it just, again, no plan, just be you?
1: Yeah, no plan. I, with Tammy Faye, there was a plan. Okay. And I have to— Because
0: it was the earliest one. So at that point, Randy's, you didn't have, the, the, right? yeah. you didn't have the, the credits behind you.
1: No. Yeah. Randy was very savvy because Tammy's second husband, Ro, had been sent to prison as well. And Tammy was living alone in Palm Springs. Oh. And he was in prison for a year. And Reddy said, we have one year to make this film. Because the moment Roe gets out of prison, <laughs> filming is going to stop. Because he'll put a stop to it. Because Roe was great, but he didn't, really look, he didn't feel comfortable with gay people. And he certainly would have protected Tammy and stopped her from making the film. But also, Tammy at the time was quite lonely. And Tammy just loved the camera. She... Mm. And I think she was, I mean, I think she was a genius. You know, she, I, she spoke television fluently. And I think she really missed. I think people unkindly say being in front of the camera because she was an attention seeker, etc., etc. No, I think she loved the camera because it was a way to communicate with people. And I think she was a very gifted communicator in that way. Mm. And, and so it was luck that we decided that she'd be a great subject for a film. And I guess it was timing because she was lonely and she wasn't doing anything with cameras. And she said to us in the parking lot before signing the agreement, she said, you know, you're not going to make fun of me, are you? And we're like, no, we're not. Um, Some people think we did make fun of her, but actually I always felt Tammy was in on the joke that she was... Always laughing about herself and, and laughing about life. And and I think we just made a film about about her and who she is and the way
0: she is. So given that list mm. of individuals, uh. I'd like to play a little game with you uh. and ask some questions. Uh, do you need me to review the names again or do you have them all? Uh okay. You got okay. Yeah, okay. Most surprising. Brittany. Brittany. Mm. Why? Well, in some way I think she's the most
1: surprising because she's the most guarded. And I think she's the most guarded for two reasons. One, she is very protected by her conservatorship, by her father, by her manager. And I know people have also said that she's manipulated by them and controlled by them, but actually I believe it's protected. Hmm. And I believe she does have a real addiction, psychological... She faces real challenges, and that the best way for Brittany to be is to keep working because it keeps her distracted. So I don't think her family is exploiting mm. her. I think they're keeping her sane. And when you sit down with Brittany, she's... The thing is, she's just not that person. You'd think that she would be this promiscuous, uh, extrovert, wanton... She's not that person. She's not the songs she sings. Right. And... In the documentary, she explains it. She she says, you know, I I get out on that stage, and I love it. And she's performing on the stage. She herself is this quiet, introspective, normal, ordinary, Mm. shy person. It's a great answer.
0: Who would you most want to have a drink with? Tammy Faye, Monica Lewinsky, Heidi Fleiss, Pam Anderson, Chaz Bono... Britney Spears, and LaToya Jackson.
1: There's one that you've left off, actually. Um, oh, please. Imelda Marcos. Oh. <laughs> we did a film with her. and uh, Good drinking, buddy? Yes. <laughs> I mean, wow. <laughs> she, <laughs> we went to the Philippines, and she said she'd give us an interview. She was with us for about five days. She wouldn't leave us alone. <laughs> She appeared, she took us up north to where her husband was embalmed for the anniversary of his death. She goes up to the town and Mm -hmm. goes to the glass coffin and kisses it. And we were staying in a hotel and she appeared in the coffee shop in the morning with bags of documents saying, look, here are the bank statements. You can see I didn't steal money. And that was like 6 a.m. in the morning. Midnight, we're like, okay, been a great day, thank you. She's like, no, 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 I have to show you some slides. (laughs) Someone is setting up a slide projector for three hours. She gave us a slideshow about construction and engineering problems and how she wants to dig a canal across the Philippines. And then it goes into her New Age symbolism. So I would like to have a drink with her, but I feel I have (laughs) had, you know... (laughs) But she is fascinating, absolutely. I mean, and she's, what, eighty? She's mid-80s yeah. now. I mean, she is bottomless source of energy.
0: When was that documentary? Well, that
1: was, uh, that was like 2006, okay. so, yeah.
0: Lowest maintenance. Hmm. Hmm. Oh. None of them. <laughs> That's an answer. That's an answer. Uh, you may have already described this with Tammy Faye, but uh, most memorable first meeting. Mm. I love how much thought he's really putting into these questions, though, really.
1: Well, it was really embarrassing because Sheila Nevins at HBO, who's been really amazing to us and given us so many opportunities, yeah. she, secured, she got Monica, Monica and said, you've got to meet Monica. Okay. And she said, just make sure you read the book. And we'll meet in my office.
0: This was Monica's m- memoir? Yeah. Okay.
1: And we met in the office in the morning. I hadn't read the book. And Monica turned to me and said, did you read the book? I was like, yes. I'm a, I'm a really bad liar. And she, I forget how, but she psyched me out. And I was so embarrassed because I hadn't read the book. Oh, and I yeah. tried to fake it. So I, yeah.
0: Clearly had a happy ending. Had Randy read the book?
1: Randy had read more of it <laughs> and is a better liar. <laughs> so There's one of those meetings where you're like,
0: if the meeting goes well, we'll read the book, right? I just, it just... Did you ever read the book?
1: I did read the book. Okay, I you really go. did. There you go. Um, Actually, there's another one you left out, and this was please. the most memorable first meeting. Oh, please. Anna Wintour.
0: Oh, yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. Okay,
1: so the meeting was at 8.30 in the morning. And... We knew that Anna is someone who is early. So we thought, we'll get there at 8.15, it's fine. At 8 o'clock, our phone is blowing up. Where are you? Anna's here. Sheila needs you immediately. Because it was at HBO and Sheila was doing this film. Well, the thing is, I don't know if I should be telling this story, but (laughs) Sheila didn't... It was one of those, you know, sometimes films happen and I, I don't know that Sheila and Anna were exactly... Well matched. Okay. And so we get into the office at about 8, 10. And they're like sitting across from each other. And it's pretty tense. <gasps> they just didn't, That's so you know. Weird. Well, Sheila's very, you know. Sheila's just let it all hang out. Okay. And Anna, I would say, is keep it all buttoned in. Mm, I feel I've said too much. <laughs> <laughs> no. But it was very tense. It Me clearly know. had a happy
0: ending. <laughs> Uh, depends how you define a happy ending,
1: but yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, feature docs versus TV docu series and formatted shows—very different in tone, very different process in making them, yet equally creatively gratifying for you as a filmmaker and a producer. Describe that for me.
1: Well, I think really it's the, the, sometimes the difference between these things is overemphasized. That I think they have more in common. Than than they do, not in common, Mm -hmm. and I think basically it's just storytelling, and I think every story, hopefully suggests to us the way to tell it, and that sometimes it should be a feature, or in the case of Party Monster, you know we made this documentary, and we felt, oh we didn't quite get it right, or we didn't quite capture it, and then we thought, oh it should be a movie,
0: and then you went and directed the feature film
1: and did the movie, and I. I'd sometimes like to do that more often because I think after you've done a documentary, you've researched a story so much that actually it'd be great to make a you know, scripted version of, of, of almost everything. How is was
0: Macaulay Call going to deal with?
1: He was the lowest maintenance. He was amazing. That's awesome. Mm. He, just, he, he really threw himself into that, that part.
0: Was Thorpe? look at the pictures, 2016, documentary comes out. Was that something that you guys had been passionate about for a while or was it something that just kind of found you in, in the moment? Well,
1: when Randy and I were in East Village, Maplethorpe was, you know, he was a name yeah. and he was kind of, he was kind of famous. Yeah. We never really, we didn't meet him. We were aware of him. And um, this is how you know Sheila Evans has had such an amazing influence on us because she said, you should look at Maplethorpe," mm. And we're like... Yeah, that's right. No one's really There was like one film um about him, but no one had really done um a full-length feature and actually we we did we were doing the research and we we're like I don't know if we really want to make this film huh. because he was such a complicated dark person. But but then I think... I think the, the, the revelation for us... I, went, I remember going to Randy's office one day saying, I really just think he was nasty. I don't want to make this film. And Randy's like, you're just jealous. <laughs> I'm mean, like, jealous of what? <laughs> well, he was a successful artist. <laughs> so that, I was like, oh, we'll have to make the film. <laughs> and... Um, but then I realized that actually he was such an important figure in terms of getting photography recognized as a fine art. And... And actually, those, the very explicitness of those pictures is, is an amazing achievement. And I think what really, when we couldn't think of the title for the longest time, and we were in the edit room, mm. and we knew we were going to begin with the Jesse Helms tearing up pictures, and, right. and he's saying, just look at the pictures. In front
0: of Congress, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes.
1: And then it just hit us. It's like, oh my God, Maplethorpe. Look at the pictures. And that's when it all made sense. Um, you know.
0: See, I wanted to bring up that project because then on the polar opposite end of the spectrum, yeah. right? Tori and Dean. Okay? In yeah. 2007, Tori and Dean. Now, when I was looking this up, I, I, what pops up on IMDb and on a lot of websites was Tori and Dean colon In Love. In with two ends, And I was like, I don't remember that show. Like, I, In Love? What, what show was that? I remember... Tori and Dean, Home Sweet Hollywood, right? Right. So I was—I literally spent like 15 minutes trying to get down to the bottom of this wormhole, right? And it was the same <laughs> show, but you guys changed titles at one point. Is that? Well, that's yes. what I was able to decipher. In season three, you just changed the title.
1: There was a reason for that. Okay. Because the first season, right? They decided they were going to start an inn.
0: That was the—that was the origin inn. Of the, that was the origin of the show.
1: Yes. Yes. Were oh, they me. really?
0: They were really doing that? Yes. <laughs> Are yes. they really doing that? They were really doing okay. it.
1: <laughs> they didn't actually buy the inn.
0: Get out of town.
1: But it actually was an inn, and guests went to stay. And they and, were running it. And paid that, and
0: they were running it, yes. And yes. then at, at around season three, it just becomes their life now in Hollywood.
1: Yes, I think actually... Gosh, I'm, I, I can't remember, but I think at the end of season one, okay. the inn... Closed and they moved on, and I think I thought that's when it changed. But and it changed also from being 30 minutes to 60 minutes, too.
0: Got it. Million dollar listing.
1: Uh-huh.
0: 2000, yeah, yeah, we got some like, yeah, thumbs up in the crowd. 2006, LA, million dollar listing, correct? <laughs> yes. Four of them, right? Four of them in the franchise since. But it took six years for the first spinoff, it took six years until New York. Yeah. Why is that?
1: Well, at first we thought, probably rightly, that no one in New York in their right minds would do the show. Why? There was a perception that New York was... I think think it's fair to say that cameras have invaded our lives, and I think all sorts of people have become more comfortable with inviting cameras into your life. Yeah. And I think that there has been an evolution of that, and that... um, Million Dollars Thing LA, I don't think real estate agents in New York were ready to do it. But wouldn't uh, because one... it was a much more high class, Tony, privileged thing. Sure. But... Know,
0: <laughs> no, of course, but wouldn't one wouldn't one just have to ask one of the Altman brothers about their experience to know that the show would just bring them more and more business and more and more clients? I don't
1: that, that wasn't known yes, you're right. But even then, I don't believe it really impacted their businesses that dramatically, that quickly. Really?
0: Yeah. It took some time. I think it did, yeah. So how did the project come to be? Was this you guys thinking, we got to get into this real estate scene? (laughs) Was there one piece of talent that came into your office? What was it?
1: Well, um, Debbie Berg. Okay. I don't know if she's still alive. Randy and I moved to L.A. And we partly moved to L.A. because we thought it was time to get a place not live in the loft that was the office and have some separation between work. And you can't buy... I mean, this was '94. You couldn't buy anything that we could afford in Manhattan. So we thought, let's go to L.A. because you can, houses were cheap. I mean, they really were. And Debbie Berg was our real estate agent, and she was tiny. She was like four feet, and she drove this enormous gold Mercedes, and she was so small; she had to have three telephone books on the chair to see over the wheel. And to drive with her to listings, you thought you were going to die. But she was a big character. Yeah. And we thought, oh my gosh, this is—she would be a great show. And then we met. Um, oh. And this—you
0: just said this is all the way back in '94. Yes. Okay.
1: Yes. Okay. And then we met the Elaine Young, who was this real estate agent to the stars, and she'd written a book, and when I say book, it was like a self-published thing with a spiral binding, and she sold O.J. his home in Brentwood, and she was famous because she'd had so much plastic surgery, silicon, she was crying silicon tears, (laughs) and she was famous, and then there were these, uh, so we met all these agents, and they were all these great characters, Mm -hmm. so we went to bravo and said, let's do a follow doc series, and the cast for the first L.A., one of the guys, he wore like a mankini. He, he had like a, like a, you know, those strips that Borat wore. Yeah. And he, but he didn't have Borat's body even. He was like, he was sort of bald and like, tummy-like. And I think at the end of the first series, Bravo said, look, You've really got to up your game here. This isn't very Bravo. After the first season? Yes. Okay. And uh, Josh Flagg was in it, but none of the others. Okay. Uh, Madison, sorry, Madison was in it, and then Josh and uh, the others, we cast the others.
0: But when you first walked into Bravo, yes. you had no cast, just a world? Yes.
1: See. And they said, cast, go cast,
0: right. go find some people. I mean, how different is that today? Yeah, you couldn't do it. Right? You have to walk in with tape. It's amazing, right? Yeah. That you have paid for. Yes, that you have you've basically produced the pilot. Yes. Correct.
1: And then they're like, oh, we've got some notes. Go and shoot it. Here's a tiny amount of money that won't pay for the money you're about to spend to redo the tape.
0: So but after all, so after all the, the real estate agents you've encountered at this point, hmm. are we in the wrong business? Because <clears throat> I feel like they have the greatest yes. gigs ever. Okay? To me, being a real estate agent is similar to being a producer, but after you pitch the show and sell it, you never need to make anything. It's just the pitch in the cell and you get to walk away.
1: I think you're right. I mean, I do think you're right, <laughs> but also they are masters of the cell. Yeah. So I sometimes wonder, are their lives really as fantastic as they make them out to be? No, I don't have inside knowledge. A, I mean, I think that it's, doing...
0: it's on television fan. It's all <laughs> true. It's, <laughs> has to be true. Uh, 2009, let's get to it, Drag Race. Um, the origin of the pitch was, clearly you had had a relationship with RuPaul forever, but when did the idea of a competition show come, come to be? And it, had you tried to pitch it previously, or was it, did you sell it the first time you took it out?
1: Well, um, Maria, who's here, and she worked with us in New York, and when we did um, the RuPaul's Christmas special it was around the same time we were like, wouldn't it be great to do a talent search show of drag queens all over the States? But we, we didn't really pitch it because we knew it was just impossible. Like, no one would ever, ever do it. And then, um, years later, Tom Campbell joined us in development, and he said, You really should do something along those lines. Mm. And we brought Rue in, and Rue said, I'll do anything but a reality competition elimination show. <laughs> <laughs> so, w- so we went away, and we came up with all these different ideas, <laughs> presented them to Rue a few months later, and Rue said, you know what we've got to do? We've got to do a reality competition elimination show. There it is. So that's how it, it came about. And we did pitch it a bunch of times before it
0: landed. It was, and Logo was the original network. Correct, yes. And how many seasons on Logo before... The, 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 this, the, mm. the switch over to VH1 was relatively yeah. recent. I think it was season eight or season nine. S- maybe season seven. I can't remember. Sorry. So when you got that call, yeah. after a lot of success and having a giant fan base, when you got the call that the show was being switched over from Logo to VH1, were you immediately thinking, this is incredible because now we're going to gain an audience?
1: Well, you know what? Originally... Yeah. Um... The first couple of seasons, it was also shown on VH1. Okay,
0: so they would yeah. replay it over there.
1: Yeah, and then they stopped doing that because they were in different lanes.
0: Right. I don't think we...
1: We knew the show was doing... Had a sort of... Was like a sleeper hit, and it had connected with audiences. But we didn't... I don't think we... I don't think we said, this is it, you know, when it switched to VH1. I just don't think we knew. And I think the lovely thing about being on Logo was that no one thought... No one thought to cancel us. <laughs> it was sort of out of the way doing its thing. And thank goodness, because I think if, if the show had been born with greater expectations on a bigger network, mm. I, I don't know that we would have made it.
0: Sometimes it's, it's good to be the biggest fish in the smaller pond. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It, w- was, it, was the notes or creative process different when uh, VH1 inherited it full time? No. That's awesome. I
1: mean, they've been amazing,
0: actually. Yeah. I mean, you would have been a huge success at that point.
1: But they just, they, they, I mean, they have been Chris McCarthy and Pam Post, and they've just been amazing at letting us do it. I mean, cool. they have notes. Who doesn't? You know?
0: Four spin offs since, right? All stars. Right. Trixie and Katya show. Yeah. Drag Race Thailand. Yeah. Did you go shoot that?
1: Didn't shoot it. We went to just go and inspect things and make sure. <laughs>
0: <laughs> take a work trip. Yeah, yeah. Is
1: it? Yeah, sort of <laughs> consult and sort of. Hmm, don't know about that. You know. It, it, um,
0: and Drag Race Untucked.
1: And Drag Race Untucked. Yeah. I mean,
0: Untucked gets its own Emmy nomination in the in in the unstructured category, right? Which is incredible. Amazing. I mean, you have the side. It, 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 describe Untucked for people that haven't seen.
1: Oh, Untucked really is the. It's sort of behind the scenes of the show. Yeah, but. It's where, because Drag Race itself, the format fills the 60 minutes or the 90 minutes, depending on what length we're doing. There's so much stuff we have to leave out. And what's, you know, Randy again was in the control room watching the queens just sit around waiting during deliberations. And he's like, oh my God, that's a show. Because it's one moment where the queens are completely unleashed in a way. And they're just, they have no, you know, they don't have to do this, they don't have to do that. And so we just started filming that.
0: It's yeah. unbelievable. I know it's been nominated the last two years yeah. in its own category. And obviously the big wins in the competition category. With the first win. I mean, can you describe that feeling the first time you came up there with the win for Drag Race? The, the win? Yeah, the first win. The first Emmy win for Drag Race.
1: Oh! Oh, just the other, like last... <laughs> that was, it was an out-of-body experience. Yeah. It was great. Because look, here's the thing: that the Emmy Awards is a very long show, and so you had to sit there. What, <laughs> not to be generous, but it's kind of boring sitting
0: there. waiting. And there's three nights of them. You know, we're just at the nerd Emmys for the most part. You know, for some of the other awards. Yeah. But was yours on the main the main show? Uh, no. For competition? Um, were you yes, the... it was on the main show. Yeah, it was, it was on the main was, show. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yes, that's right. Um, and I mean, personally, I got really nervous and clammy of hands and it, you just they just said it and I couldn't believe it and it was just dreamlike and just everyone rushed out. it was it was nice it was really nice and then I bumped into
0: I was going to ask were there any great backstage well that's yeah yes,
1: that's a nice thing so you yeah. go backstage and and there's a room full of Emmys like this big just Emmys everywhere and you get given your Emmy and I was standing right next to uh who's the queen in the crown
0: oh the crown um
1: Claire Foy, I mean, I think she's just amazing and so beautiful and stunning. So I was just standing next to her. She had an Emmy. I had an Emmy. And I was like, oh, I really like you. I mean, I was crass. I was just sort of an inane fan,
0: you know. But the thing is, when you have the Emmy in your hand, nobody can turn you down for like a hello. I tell you, that, that people right? are so nice to you. <laughs> and
1: the, the, the thing is, you go to the governor's ball. And then you're supposed to go to other parties. Yeah. And they're like, take your Emmy with you. And I was like, no, I'm going to leave it in the car. And they're like, no, take it with you. Yep. I'm really good. It was just the love. It was great. And then Tom, Campbell, and Randy, they both brought their Emmys with them everywhere for like a week to pitch <laughs>
0: meetings. Oh my gosh. Tom so took funny. it on
1: his hike up Runyon Canyon to oh restaurants.
0: And it was <laughs> like, Runyon Canyon. <laughs> <laughs> it's hiking. It's, it's hiking. on a chain like Flavor Flavor. He's just marching <laughs> along. I actually um. – I, I remember uh, when I was an assistant at NBC, Kathy Griffin literally came in for her meeting with both her Emmys. It makes sense. And she different. said, I'm looking for Ben Silverman. Where is he? And had both in both hands. And she brought him to the meeting. And I've always respected it that. It really
1: helps. Yeah, <laughs> I should have brought it here. <laughs> uh,
0: I would love to hear just some of the personal uh, fan mail, uh, personal reach out you've received on behalf of the audience and how Drag Race has touched – the audience. I'm sure you've had multiple people reach out to you about how it's impacted their life in some way. I'm assuming this. Please tell me if I'm wrong, but I would love to hear if there was any such reach out that really, you know, impacted you and, and Randy.
1: There are. I mean, there is a lot. Yes, and I think it's, um, you know, I just think back to when I was growing up, and you know, certainly in England, it was illegal to be gay, and. Um, I just think it's... I mean, in a way, what is Drag Race in a way other than Batman and Robin? I mean, it is fabulous dress-up, fabulous costumes, really colorful and fun. And I just think it's really great that kids can see that and yeah. feel that. Um, I think perhaps the thing that moved me the most and is always hard for me to talk about without crying or is when Roxy Andrews... Um, her lip sync and it's right afterwards and she starts to sob, she's on the stage and um, Rue says, what's wrong? And she's like, nothing, nothing and he makes her tell what's going on with her and she is unhinged with emotion and sobbing and tells a story about how when she was three her mother left her at the bus stop and just abandoned her. And it's like, oh, it's just so... <laughs> I'm, I'm a parent, and um, you just can't imagine how parents could do that to their kids because they don't want them, you know? And it, it's like, I was so... That, to me, was a huge turning point with the show because I, I, I realized that to be a drag queen or actually to do anything, to get out of bed in the morning is really hard and everyone is struggling every day. And that kind of courage to get up there and do that, I think that is so inspiring. And I, I can't, whether you're gay or straight or drag queen or not, I think it's, it's something we can all learn from and it can give us all strength to get through our days.
0: Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And again, building a sense of community, letting people know out there they're not alone, Mm -hmm. that kind of ties in with the community you've built through DragCon. DragCon in 2015. You guys are now convention runners, owners, impresarios. This is crazy to me. Like, I don't even know the first, well, I I know some people here we can ask, but I don't know what goes into running a conference. A lot. A lot. (laughs) You guys have, I mean, just, if you guys just did million dollar listings and drag race, that would be like beyond a full-time job, right? You're running a freaking convention now. Is it it once a year or is it multiple cities? We do do
1: in um, May in LA and September in New York. How did this come Um, to be?
0: Well, you know, it
1: it came to be because we was, as Drag Race took off, we realized these, unlike a lot of other reality shows, and this is absolutely not to knock them, but sometimes when those competition shows end, that's the end of the experience for the participants. Exactly right. And we started to notice that the drag queens, all of them, have these careers, and they go on tour, and they get managers, and they're earning money, and that's great. And we think,
0: hmm, Maybe
1: are we missing a trick here?
0: Right. And, and, for, the fa- and for the fan base, sorry to cut you off, but for the fan base, you can maybe see one of them if they're in your city, but to see all of them at the same time right. is the ultimate fan experience, yeah.
1: And Rue, you know, it goes back to that Roxy Andrews moment because Rue said, you know, we are your family, this is your tribe. Right. And out of that recognition of not necessarily LGBTQ, but certainly that core base of uh, people who feel for one reason or another, outside of things, we realized there's a tribe here, yeah. and why don't we just try, why don't we just try it? I mean, we, we, had we thought about it more carefully, we may have talked ourselves out of doing it. But, <laughs> but we're like, let's just try it and see what happens. And, um, yeah, it, it was it was amazing to see, and to see what's so great is you see that the the people who watch Drag Race and the people who come, a lot of families, a lot of, Parents with kids—that's awesome. Old and young—it's—it's it's not that that usual television demographic of eighteen to thirty-four. You know, you suddenly realize that the way we speak about demographics and ratings is—I think in drag race quite misleading because I think it has an appeal that's that's all over the map, and and it just—it's it, kind of fun. I mean, really, any—I recommend anybody should come. <laughs> and there's no question that what what. Um, Barry does with Real screen has, you know, inspired us and the idea of doing panels and you just create this event for a tribe of people in the way that we're all unscripted. We're the unscripted tribe, right? And it's, so cool. Yeah.
0: Uh, I'm going to do some rapid fire questions because we've got about four minutes left. Um, so I'm just going to go through these. Worst pitch meeting experience? Too
1: many is the name.
0: Come on, really? <laughs> Yeah, um,
1: Yeah. okay, well, there was one, but I... No, you can. You, you, you can do it. No, I can do it. I just can't really remember what it was we were pitching. But the executive leaned back in his chair and laughed. And we're like, oh, that's good, you yeah. know. And he said, you know, this is funny, because I would never in a million years do this pitch, do this show. Um, and you're like, why is that funny? Another one was Tom Campbell, who now works with us at World of Wonder, was an executive at MTV. And Laurie Pike was amazing host of Manhattan Cable. And we went with her into MTV to pitch a show. As we walked in the door, Tom said, I've just bought this show, blah, 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 blah. And it was the exact show we were about to pitch. Oh, God. I looked at Randy. Randy looked at me like, okay. So we immediately made up a completely different <laughs> show on the spot. It was going great. But Laurie's sitting there, and she suddenly says, what are you talking about? And I'm like, no, Laurie, no. This, this is not the show. And we, we're like, Laurie, no, really, it is. And she's like, are you on crack? <laughs> At which point Tom Campbell says, um, would you like to step outside uh, and decide what you're pitching? And then oh. he, he was very sweet. Now, he was lovely about it, but... Laurie wasn't in on it and didn't go along with it. That we must, didn't sell the show, but...
0: That must have been an awkward elevator ride down. Very
1: awkward, Yeah, yes.
0: I, know those, I know those elevator rides too we well. We do
1: have a rule, though. It's called the elevator rule, which is that you never say a word... Yes. ...until you're out of the building. This is a great tip. Do not say anything in the elevator. Yes,
0: yes, off the premises. And Randy has another
1: one, which I think will get him into trouble one day, which is never leave a meeting empty-handed. So, with most pitches, it's no... So if you're going to go to the meeting, you might as well get something. So pen, paper, pencils, I, office chairs.
0: I really was wondering where you're going to go with that. Like, like a development deal? Like, no. like Theft,
1: larceny. Yeah.
0: Chocolate. Mm. <laughs> What's the one idea you still can't sell?
1: Well, I might have sold it. This oh, real congratulations. Screen, it's called past life makeovers. Okay. How do you know where you're going if you don't know where you've been? And it's an immersive experience. We put you under, and we discover what your past life was, and then we immerse you in that experience. So, you know, maybe you were a slave in ancient Egypt. Oh, oh, God. So we give you a full-on three-day slave experience in ancient (laughs) Egypt. And then we see if it, you know, if it helped you in your life.
0: So you, okay, you recreate the whole environment for them over three days. Yes. And at the end of the three days...
1: They'll sleep in a, you know, a pit or... Wear, wear the clothes and eat the food. So it's sort of, it's not like an epic recreation. It's not Game of Thrones. It's just like this is what you would wear and you'd have fleas and you know, you would be eating gruel and you'd be whipped. That's great. And we'd, or, That's great. Or a gladiator in ancient Rome.
0: I think only you can sell that idea. If I walk in with that idea, yeah, I'm getting the laugh.
1: It's taken about 18 years so far. That is
0: awesome. That. I think we're all pulling for you. Thank uh, you. Okay, last, last thing, because we're uh, about to wrap up. Oh, man, I had two more questions. but All right, if you weren't a producer or working in entertainment, what would you be doing for a living?
1: Oh, my God, I have no idea. I would be useless. I'd be completely unemployed and unemployable.
0: Okay, I can jump. To, I have one more question anyway, so I can breeze right through that. Mistakes you made early in your career that you've now learned from?
1: Hmm. <laughs> well, that's too many. How long have we got? <laughs> Um,
0: like for example, you didn't yeah. learn that elevator rule until much later. Oh,
1: right? I, d- I d- one mistake. Yes, we went to pitch an executive. He bought us lunch on the lot, um, Fox lot. Bought us lunch. Very nice guy. Very helpful, supportive to us. And it, this is in LA. Yeah. And after lunch, he said, "I'll walk you to your car." Our car was. A rabbit convertible with a slashed roof. It was like, we had a terrible car. And we're like, no, no, it's fine. We, we, it, we're just over That's fine. <laughs> He's like, no, I will walk you to your car. I've
0: never had a network executive insist on walking me yeah. to the parking garage. Yeah. That's bizarre.
1: And he did, and he saw our car. I mean, at first we were trying, like, maybe we should just like, pretend someone else's car. That might be a, that
0: a, <laughs> might be a good thing, though, because it's like, I really got to give these guys a show.
1: But it was, you know... He didn't say anything, but he looked at us. Yeah. Evident disappointment. And I mean, really. I want
0: the producer that has a bad car. You know what they say in LA?
1: Your car is your suit. And Uh. so we saved lots of money and got rid of the car.
0: What are you driving now?
1: Oh, it's so douchey. I'm sorry, guys. I drive a Tesla. I love it. I, I don't like cars.
0: Don't apologize for it. You, I think you've earned it.
1: I love it's the best car.
0: Yeah, good for you. You just put your
1: foot down; and it just goes, and, and it drives itself. So you can text. Bri- you, you, you do that? No, I, but it I, does, I, it I, does I, actually do. I mean, it does have this ability to drive itself. It can't. It can't turn corners, but it can. Um, <laughs> no, it can speed up, slow down, and stay in lane, and it can even change lane. But another, just one other thing. Yes, please. If you're coming up to a red light uh, and the intersection is empty, you've got to put it out of auto drive because all it sees is empty space, and it will accelerate into that intersection.
0: It, it doesn't yet read red lights. No, not yet. Sorry. Perfect wrap. Up. I'm getting the red light right now. Thank you, everybody. Thank ben you. Bailey, everybody. Thank you.